This week's guest is Andy Mann. Uh, he is uh, somebody I've known for a long time in industry and a real leader when it comes to infrastructure, automation, DevOps, analysis, uh, just putting everything together. He's been an analyst, he's worked in industry, and we had an amazing conversation ranging the whole gamut of, of how to make technology better. Um, complexity, hybriding, open source, uh, you name it, we covered it. Uh, let me give you a, a snapshot from the end. I love open source. I use it myself. But there's, I have a very strong brand of pragmatism, Rob, as you know. Um, mix of open source and proprietary, mix of cloud and on-premise. The world is fundamentally hybrid. Um, dogma only really gets you a long way if you're in the church. It doesn't really get you that far if you're trying to build enterprise systems. You've got to be pragmatic in this world, I think. And so a balance of good open source software with good proprietary software from multiple brands as well. You know, use what's going to make your business work better. And that was Andy as he was winding down. Uh, so full of energy, really great conversation. I know you're going to love every bit of it. And uh, if you get a chance, imagine just sitting down, having a drink with Andy, because that is his natural element. Enjoy. So Andy, welcome to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on. Rob, it uh, is can you go ahead to be with you? It's been ages. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I I feel like this is Andy and I normally meet at bars in Las Vegas. Um, is is so this this I feel like we're going to recreate except for the bar sounds. Maybe we'll add them into the show show notes. <laughs> but um, you know, Andy. Great friend, you're recently out of Splunk. Give it, can you give us an introduction and let you know, let us know what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you could probably call me a, an independent analyst now. Um, so I, yeah, I was with Splunk for six years. I was their chief technology advocate. I led a bunch of work around DevOps, around new product introduction. I did some strategic M&A. Um, oh, what, great company. I had a great time. I did great work, but it was time for me to seek my own new adventures. Um, so I, yeah, before that, lots and lots of stuff. You would probably know I was at CA Technologies for a while in the office of the CTO there. Uh, I've worked with content management, APIs, automation. I was an analyst for five years before with a small firm called EMA. Um, I actually spent about 15 years at the coalface of this industry as well, um, doing IT operations. My very first job out of school was in a data center. Like I went to university, it wasn't the right thing for me at the time. And so I bailed and I got a trainee job. That, they used to exist. It's really hard now, I think, for young people to, to get into this world through those sorts of mechanisms. But as a trainee, I was too young to go on shift work. I was 17 years old when I started my first shift work job. And I had to wait two weeks for my 18th birthday before I could go on shift. Um, but yeah, now I'm running Sageable. It's my independent analyst firm. It is, I, I could call it a startup, but I've actually been running it for six years on and off. Um, okay. So providing an analysis, consulting, I'm in the depths of some primary research right now. I'll, I'll, I won't get into what that is. I'm doing some, uh, writing some reports on some you know, enterprise topics. Um, I'm just having the time of my life wrong. It, it is nice to be free of the corporate, the corporate gag, right? I mean, it, you, you've always done a good job 
with Splunk of putting what Splunk did in good generic terms, right? Not just like Splunk, 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 but explaining the industry problems, voice for the customer, things like that. I've always felt like that was really important, and and I'm I'm glad to have you completely off the off off the uh, corporate PR. Uh, Spin yeah. from that perspective. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fine line. There's lots of DevRels out there who I suspect would be watching today or listening today. Um, and, you know, the, the whole evangelism advocacy thing is tough. You've got to have authenticity. You've got to be your own authentic self. You know, the one thing I will take from one job to another is my authentic self. Um, and I can't go out and talk about something I don't have a passion for to start with. So that comes through whenever I talk about the products and solutions. But I also recognize that when I'm talking with my customers and trying to help them, they don't really care about what brand names and product names are involved. They want to figure out what the solutions are. If they're trying to innovate and do new things and trying to develop their strategy, they want to understand the art of the possible, not the art of the possible if you already have my software installed. Right. And so, yeah, I appreciate that you noticed that, Rob. It's important to me that when I'm in those roles, obviously, you know, I'm selling. My, my company pays me not just because I love technology, although I do. They pay me because I help them to sell software. Um, and so I recognize that. And there's always an opportunity to earn that trust, to earn the opportunity with your audience to talk about your brand, to talk about your product, or even give a demo, to ask for an opportunity to come and talk about your brand and your product at a later time. But when you're at a conference, when you're at an event, when you a first customer meeting, um, a podcast or webcast, it's not about the brand or the product. It's really about the answers to questions and solutions. I was going to say, one of the things I think that, that you, you do well in this um, is talk about the vision of what it could be, right? I mean, and this to me is sort of sort of DevOps. You and I, before before we turn on the mics, we're we're talking about automation and how important you know going deep in automation is. Um, yeah, how do you how do you capture what people's vision is, right? Not just their problems, but but where they want to go. Yeah, exactly right. And this is. Yeah, well, certainly in the automation game, and this is where I've been for a long, long time, by the way, I, I've yeah. automated myself out of three jobs and I'm super proud of that. Um, yeah, it's funny, in the modern era, we talk about SREs and relentless automation, right? Um, great, let's have it. I've been relentlessly automating for like 30 years. My first, I, I've automated myself out of so many jobs because I think the computer should do more. And so I always look deeper. I look deeper into what the computer's trying to weigh. How is this process started? If I'm finding a human being who kicks off an automated process, for example, I'll always ask, well, what happens that tells you to kick that process off? Now, it could be a time of day thing. Five o'clock, branches close. We kick off our, our reconciliations, right? Well, you know what? That's actually an issue because what if my branch stays open until six? So even time of day is not enough. It's really about the business cycle and the business flow. So in automation, digging deeper, going deeper into the process, and I feel that same way when I'm talking with customers about what they need to solve. It's, it's yeah, the old line that Henry Ford almost definitely did not say was, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. Um, and he then went and invented a car. Of course he did. This is the thing as a product leader, especially 
you can get sucked into the requirements of your customers. And people say, oh, I always listen to my customers and that's how I build software. Good, you absolutely have to, but as a product leader, you need to lead as well. So it's a combination of, yeah, you need to get deep into what these people actually want to solve, but you also need to lead with experience of what you've done with, with other customers in other environments, working with other teams. You've got knowledge too. So it's a it's it's definitely push me pull you. Yeah, th this was an interesting thing because what what you're talking about and we see is you know a lot of times people will ask and I, I love the 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 non attribution of the quote that's awesome <laughs> by the way. Um, but what what we see is that customers a lot of times will say I want my this thing one thing to be better right the the idea that they're connecting all the dots together the integration pieces. Um, that is, it's been interesting to me because everybody wants more integrated systems and it seems like they're not asked, they, they're like, I want more integrated systems. I have a vision of things connecting together, but the vendors are really bad at doing that, that connection. Oh. And maybe for good reasons, but what, what do you, is there a way to get people to bop and integrate? Yeah, look, there is, and I've done it myself uh, a number of times. Yeah, going to customers, it's a big driver of my partnership business that I've done in the past, partnering with many different mm. companies so that I can make a solution our customers need, right? When you partner as a software vendor specifically, when you partner with other businesses, there's a couple of ways, you re ways and reasons. Sometimes it's just to get access to their customer base. Certainly working with a large, you know, company, you know, billion dollars in revenue, 4,000 people, we've got 15,000 customers. Everyone comes to us wanting to partner with us because they want to get into our customer base. And sometimes it's like, well, I like you, but that's not going to help my customers. They're not asking for it. But I'll tell you, one of the most um, rewarding periods I had at Splunk was working with a small company called VictorOps here in Boulder, where I live in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and I initially worked with them and there's some great people were there and some still are and some moved on um, and it was local. So I knew some of the people involved and I literally got to know them at, oh, uh, DevOps Days Denver. Um, my t-shirt, which I'm showing to Robin, <laughs> no one can see on, on the podcast, of course. It's is beautiful for, orange. It's a beautiful orange for DevOps Days Rockies. I'm wearing it right now in the hope that if I do, it's like a shaman and it will bring back the in-person events. Um, but so working with them, talking with these people at DevOps Days Rockies and then later meeting up with them here in Boulder for social events, I got to know a couple of people and that meant that I, that when they had a customer they needed to work with, with my company, they knew exactly who to call. So they called me and said, Andy, can you help us out? Can you help us integrate our products? Because we've got a joint customer who really wants to take your data in our, into our product and work with it and make it meaningful. And that's perfectly on brand for the company I was working with, Splunk at the time, that is solving a customer problem, that is creating and building relationships. And in the end, product manager to product manager, working together to do integration based on individual user stories and retiring individual feature requirements yeah. on integrated sets. And then Victor Ops and Splunk started talking together as products. And we solved that customer problem. And then the floodgate opens, right? <laughs> then we've got account right. managers, salespeople, right? Saying, hang on, I've got a customer that needs that too. 
and from both sides. So now we're really working together and the products are working together. And I'll tell you, Rob, there are a lot of ways you can do it. It can be top down. It can come from your biz dev people. It can come from your sales team. It can come from your CEO. But I personally believe one of the best ways to get products to work together is to get a customer that makes both vendors work together. Yeah, I, I love the customer-driven integration side. It's yeah. right. I, I mean, that it inventing integrations just doesn't actually have that much market capability. Yeah. And you know, the, with the exception of the time when you're about to build something and you're like, and, and as a company, you're like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't build this again. And that this to me is why integrations are so hard. Yeah. Because every time you do an integration, you're now sustaining that. Mm. Right. It's and and it's and uh, and th and this is going to dive us straight into the complexity or, you know, where, where I see this complexity explosion. Oh, yeah. And we're seeing this in Twitter, right? People are finally like, oh, that's so complex. And my head's exploding, right? But what, what I feel like is happening is like, we're doing all these SASs, right? We're doing all these Kubernetes landscape things. It's like many, many projects, microservices. And then the, you know, every microservice is an integration. And then, and we're just getting integration fatigue you know, complexity explosion stuff. Um, and and my, my point with all this stuff is that for vendors to do integrations, they have to have a reason to, you know, commercial reason to sustain that integration. Otherwise it just like, you know, I mean, I look at, look at our own product and, you know, back, back in the, I'll pick on honeycomb. Could we, we did this in it. Like I sat down at a conference table and in an hour built a honeycomb integration with their SE. And it was beautiful. Like we did a joint blog post. It was all kumbaya. But we didn't have a customer using it. And so it never got picked up. It never got sustained. And and you know it's it there was no value to either party except cross promotion. Yeah. Um, oh. oh so way back when I heard the term that that was a Barney partnership. I love you, you love me, but we don't actually do anything more than that. Right, <laughs> which is lovely. It makes for a great press release, but it doesn't necessarily help any of your customers get the job done, does it? There are a lot of those being done. Yeah, and the funny thing to me is that most companies I know don't have a lot of spare engineering resources. No, and so even it's funny, even commercially useful uh, integrations often languish because it's oh, yeah. like can't can't do it. I mean, think of things like the, but way back in the day, without disparaging anyone in particular, but way back in the day, the VMware had a vApp store, right? It doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. The idea that you could bundle up a virtual application with a virtual server and then just drop it on some bare metal somewhere. Um, and so they opened that up and everyone created, and all of a sudden there's literally 1,500 vApps with no certification, no updating, no idea of what's deprecated, what's not, no maintenance being applied except to like the top 100. It's a little bit like stuff in the app stores today even. Yeah, you know? right. um, and you know, commercial enterprise grade software is very different obviously, but a similar thing happens. If no one's using it, if there's no one paying for developer time to keep it updated, that developer's got other things to do. And I totally understand that. Um, you know, we all are directed to do the things which are important for the businesses which employ us. Sometimes we get the opportunity to do extra stuff. You know, Google's 20% time. We can do innovation work or we can do our own coding work. We can work on our 
on our on our uh, uh, on our repo pattern matching. Make sure our make sure our GitHub looks really cute with all the green boxes. And um, you know, something you can do that. But ultimately, if you're going to work on commercial software, you've got to have a commercial reason to do so. So you're absolutely right. This, this is one of the challenges with all, with open source at the moment, right? Is, yeah. you know, if you're going to do open source and people are going to use your software without paying you for, you know, like for, for us, it's if it's in production yeah. and somebody calls you up for production assistance, it's like, wait, why am I helping you run your data center without a commercial relationship? I'm not even yeah. sure that's a good idea. Exactly. Yeah, and, there's, and there's been a ton of that. The, the innovation side is really important too, because you know, it's something I write in my book. I've got a book behind me, uh, the, the Innovative CIO. Um, and one of the lines I use in there is that innovation, sorry, innovation without execution is hallucination, right? Anyone can imagine incredible ideas, but unless you make it happen, well, it's just art. You know, it's, it could be a painting on the wall, pretty, but it doesn't do anything. Um, and it, when you're driving innovation internally, you've got to be careful about this too. This idea that I'm doing an innovative project and everyone's going to love it. Um, but when I'm done, I'm done. And who's going to take it on? And so this happens in open source quite a lot. Projects that just don't get taken up. I was working with a business not that long ago where we were creating new innovations. And when we were done, we had like a prototype, but we weren't a full product team. We were an innovation lab. And so the full product team we try and hand this off to them. They go, well, that's not a product, so I don't want it. And, and so the, the senior manager actually at the time would say things like, oh, well, why don't we just open source it and let the community keep building it? It's like, oh. mate, what community? We're the community. We're building this. So without that groundswell of adoption, even in open source, you can have great innovations, but they fall down because no one keeps them up because ultimately the motivation to continue to develop an update doesn't exist because there are no significant commercial user base. It's challenging for those developers for sure because yeah. um, they've got beautiful software that sort of languishes a lot of the time. Well, but a lot of times they have beautiful software that doesn't stand the test of, you know, users who don't follow exactly their model. Well, yeah, that's true too. That's, that's, this is right. This is what makes makes software hard, not open source software. Software hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When, what what you write and the way somebody uses it are different, and and there's a lot of knobs to twist in yeah. in software. Oh yeah, and and I'd point out that the company that I was working for at the time was a proprietary software company, um, um, who didn't really understand open source and how it works and who owns it and why it gets developed and stuff like that. Um, yeah. No, it's the, there's so many, the, the, the challenges of open source and the people, especially of us who've been bouncing between open and proprietary. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it can be really, it's, it, it's really hard to launch something in the open, provide the support for it, get the commercial coverage for it. Um, yeah, no, we, yeah, we, we look, watch we that. We see this in, in so many ways uh, with so many open source companies that struggle. We're seeing it right now. We've got a whole bunch of licensing wars going on, right? Mm -hmm. With people forking open source projects because your licensing isn't right and I want better licensing for my customers or I want to add features that you sell um, and, and so I'm just going to make them free. And all of a sudden you've got two competing forks and one company's put in you know, years and years of work. Another company just takes it on and starts to own it. And it's like, oh, well, oh, crap, what happens to my revenue stream? Um, it's hard. Who's made money from like lots of money from open source? 
handful of companies, but it's so hard, that model. I love open source. I use it myself. But there's I have a very strong brand of pragmatism, Rob, as you know. Um, yeah. Mix of open source and proprietary, mix of cloud and on-premise. The world is fundamentally hybrid. Um, dogma only really gets you a long way if you're in the church. It doesn't really get you that far <laughs> if you're trying to build enterprise systems. You've got to be pragmatic in this world, I think. And so a balance of good open source software with good proprietary software from multiple brands as well. You know, use what's going to make your business work better. Ah, yeah, but I mean, I'm listening to you and and saying hallelujah, I agree, right? But I also think about the complexity on this stuff mm -hmm. and the complexity explosion. And, and it's sort of like, all right, you know, how do you, how do we, you know, actually, let me ask it this way. Is, are, do you think that the complexity, right now, the complexity curve to me is going asymptotic vertically? Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, right. So it's, it's going straight up. It's, you know, at some point where the all forward progress will be zeroed out by the complexity it requires to, to migrate. And it feels like we've got to figure out a way to make the complexity curve, you know, <laughs> go to zero horizontally or, or at least linear. It has, it has to come down to linear. Yeah, I mean, one, are you seeing that too? And and how do we begin to, you know, bring flatten the curve in yeah. uh, 2020 parlance? Look, Rob, you're absolutely right about complexity. Um, and you can prove it mathematically, by the way. And for you, all the listeners, right, you can't see what's going on right now, but do something for me. Put two dots on a piece of paper between you and draw a line between them. That's integration, right? Put another mm. dot and integrate your first two dots. Now you've got two more lines. Put one more dot and integrate all four. Now you've got one, two, three, four, five, six lines. This is this is literally an exponential <laughs> curve, right? It, actually, it's even worse because there's a time element because by the time you've gotten those dots connected, one of those dots has revved its versions and broken the connections. And <laughs> right? it's, it's not even, it's not even like, it's not even the, the area, surface area. It's a, it's a, it's a cylinder. Of the and, I haven't thought of that. If you make that a three-dimensional sphere, because then you've got multiple versions. Oh man. Yeah. yeah version. And, and, and some companies are like totally unapologetic about breaking their APIs. Oh, I know. Oh, that's a killer. Sorry. sorry I, I, I don't cut you off. How do we flatten the curve? Oh, so, um, I will tell you, Rob, my belief, there's only one way you can do it, and it's not with humans. Um, humans deal with complexity pretty poorly, right? We're not, we're not geared to deal with complexity in a lot of ways, right? Um, you'll see, for example, uh, humans very bad at numbers, just generally. This is a, a TED talk I'm working on right now. Um, humans very bad with numbers. Um, humans can't even grok large numbers, right? Large numbers start to misbehave, by the way, when they get really large. Um, and they don't even follow normal rules. And so, and attention spans, ability to process data, right? We, as humans, there are psychological theories, the uh, seven plus or minus two. This is one of the reasons phone numbers tend to be seven, eight, or nine digits, because humans can remember numbers that are seven digits plus or minus two. Um, the uh, rules around uh, socialization and networking. We're able to actually have a fully fleshed out network of maybe 50 people, right? Um, but we can't, we can't work with connections more than that. We lose weight. Humans are really good at a bunch of stuff, don't get me wrong. 
we innovate, we make logical jump, uh, logical leaps, right? Um, we can dream of ideas that wouldn't exist in the real world. We don't need to match patterns that already exist. Um, we can solve problems through intuition because I feel like I've seen something like this before. A machine will need to see exactly that thing before. Um, and so, if, you know, and so machines are really good at some stuff. Humans are really bad at some stuff. Humans are really bad at complexity. Humans are really bad at abstraction. Um, so these two things are really easy for automation. Um, I will say developers, I think, work better with abstraction than ops people because they've been doing it all their life. Abstracted memory, mm. right? Pointers, stuff like that. There's no such thing as a pointer in ops, really. You don't have a pointer to a, to a hard drive. You just have a hard drive. We're DNS, there, I say we, that's why DNS is always broken. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. DNS is a pointer, I guess. Um, we're getting better at this, but I think ultimately the complexity only gets solved by machines coming in and doing that work as directed by humans and freeing up humans to do the stuff that the machines cannot do. And so automation is absolutely key. Machine learning is absolutely key. Repository-based triage and diagnosis. Um, just one example, for example, uh, you get data out of a system that's failing. So you can triage that using a repository. We used to use a CMDB, a configuration management database. Uh, I got all sorts of problems with that. Um, but the idea of understanding your configurations, understanding code releases, what happened to change that environment, even to the point of who checked the code in, to make the change happen that caused my system to fail, this is known data. Why would a human have to go and rifle through data from log files and metrics to try and figure this out? This should be done with a machine learning understanding problems, repository storing knowledge and referring to it, and automation taking the right responses. And that right response might be, I have no idea what's going and I need a human now. Um, I think that's how we have to deal with complexity because it is getting exponentially harder. Uh, and I think the only way we deal with that is with machines doing more of that routine grunt knowable work. I, th I think you're right. The, the interesting thing to me is when, when people ask me what infrastructure as code means, it's the CIO telling the ops team, I wish you were more like the developer. <laughs> Yep. Right. That that to me, that's infrastructure as code. And what you just described with developers being better at abstractions than op than the ops teams is exactly that. That's one of the elements with this. It's like, yeah, I, hey, ops teams, stop coding things down to that bottom level. Yeah. It, what's, what's funny with the ops teams, and like we deal with this, I call it necessary complexity. Mm -hmm. Right. Systems, systems that try and abstract away too much too much complexity or don't have a way to bypass the abstraction when they need to. Yep. Do not make good operational systems. Oh, tell you. And, uh, it, well, yeah. Let's work on. Well, what I was going to say is that from that perspective, you, know, you have to have a system that can handle, you know, deal with the complexity when it needs to. And then, but, but hide it or isolate it or abstract it where it can. Yeah. Um, and it's been super hard. The, the, the biggest thing that I see um, is that we get into places where it's like, oh, I'm just going to use, um, this was a big complaint of mine in the OpenStack days, where they tried to make OpenStack do bare metal and containers and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, yeah. 
And, and everybody's like, well, why won't that work? I'm like, because the abstractions you built to make VMs easy to manage hide the information you need to make those other things easy to manage. Right. The abstractions don't fit. And if you fix the abstractions, then it won't fit for anything. Yeah. Um, and Rob, yeah, this is a super important point you're alluding to here. In my mind, um, complexity is not necessarily bad. And you, you don't necessarily need to solve the complexity per se. Because I, this is something I've, I've, I've dealt with with uh, multiple software vendors and working in, with the marketing teams in those vendors as the technologists. Marketing teams always want to say, we're going to make your environment simple, right? Dear CIO, we're going to simplify your IT. And I sit back and I go, well, that's really insulting, isn't it? Do you think the CIO deliberately went to make a complex environment and doesn't know how to make it simple? That's not what's going on. People build complex environments because they deliver business value, right? This is about my pragmatism again. No, this is, we, we, we have a story that we that I uh, love to tell. Every customer we talk to will pull us aside and apologize for their environment. Oh, yeah. And they'll all be like, yeah, well, we had to do this. We had to do this. And and we'll turn to, and they're, they're embarrassed, right? They're like, yeah. oh, we did this stupid whatever, whatever. And I'm like, everybody does that, right? Every, you know, that is, you did that for good reason. Exactly. It's not a mistake. It's you dealing with, pragmatically with the environment you've got yeah it's and and but people hide that and and that's part of the human behavior that you're talking about it's like oh, yeah. they're like well i don't want to tell anybody i did this so we'll just sort of try and hide it and and instead of being like hey you know the systems are sort of hard they, they sometimes they suck they they have old apis i can't patch i i can't ignore it no right no, complexity exactly. is is part of the systems yeah, yeah. that's the thing you know they, they, they are really good reasons um uh, story time, I learned this in one of my early jobs. I was doing project management for a, a, a systems automation. I was working at a bank, um, project managing implementation of online viewing for bank statements. This was a thing back in the day. You, it was only paper, right? And if you needed to look up a historical statement, you would literally get out microfilm. Uh, all the millennials listening today, go look that up um, and be thankful you don't have to deal with it. And so I was cell phone, cell phone pictures. Of the, <laughs> you know, we take cell phone pictures, the documents, it's the same thing, just. Exactly, yeah. And so I was going through a project to, to do this. And I, as a young man at the time, full of hubris and arrogance in the world, looked at this and went, well, that was never a good answer, was it? Um, having to get out microfiche and with a specialized reader. And, and I'm saying, and, and I'm writing a, an internal white paper. I'm saying, well, this was always a bad idea. So it turns out the person who was reading that and funding the project was the person who came up with that idea in the first place. And we had a discussion, let me tell you, Rob, about <laughs> why that was the right decision at the time, given the technologies and the demands they had. This happens all the time still today. We come across these complex environments that have built up over time. And we, we talk about terms like technical debt and enterprise architecture, like they're universal truths. And yet, People do what they need to do to make their business work at that time with the resources and technologies they have available to them. And by the way, within the political boundaries and budget boundaries and everything else they have going on. So absolutely. This is not a, a name and shame kind of event. This is like, oh, okay, we can work with this. Let's fix the problem. I don't need to make it less complex per se. So so we're we're just about out of time, but 
you you said the magic words enterprise architecture uh, and one of the things that you and I had talked about was the, you know the, the the missing enterprise architecture role in these organizations can you give us some thoughts maybe almost as a teaser because I know you're working on this as material what should people be thinking about um, before they read your 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 enterprise architecture tome yeah look it's really, in my mind, you're absolutely right. I've been on a, a bit of a mission for probably oh, many years now to make sure we don't lose fundamental discipline and process knowledge just because we drive innovation with new things in new ways. Mm -hmm. There are some things that remain important. I will give ITSM and IT, ITIL a serve every time I hear about it now. But the idea of collecting and managing a set of configurations so you know what's happening in your environment is really important. Important for triage, important for cost management, important for integration requirements, all sorts of reasons. Doesn't mean I want a CMDB, but I want to know how things are configured at the time I need to know. And so for enterprise architecture, this is this in reverse. Um, it's an important skill set which is dropping off. Because as we empower individual developers to do whatever they want to do, in the name of agility, speed, serving the market, uh, getting uh, uh, solutions out quickly so that we beat our competitors, these are all great things. But we've talked, you and I have talked, and a lot of people have talked about this idea of if you're on the freeway and you're going 100 miles an hour, two things are going to help you. Guardrails so you don't fly off the freeway at 100 miles an hour and brakes, which for me is security, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I can go 100 miles an hour because if a deer pops out in front of me, my Brembos are going to lock and I'm going to stop. If I don't yeah. have the brakes, I can't go that fast. Enterprise architecture to me is a set of guardrails and it's a set of brakes that will let you go fast in the right direction and if you start to veer off, it'll bounce you back into the middle. And if you get really lost, it'll let you stop before you crash. And I, so I do. I do think that enterprise architecture is a bit of a lost art in our business at the moment in the name of agility and speed. But I do think we've got to get some level of that skill set back. Wow. That is words. That, that, I couldn't imagine a better closing. Andy, thank you. Um, those are very wise words. How do people find you? How do they, how do they get in touch? Oh, Rob, thank you so much for having me. It's always a thrill uh, to just share ideas with you. Um, and that people I, I, I feel like, I feel like our conversation, this is the place where the, the, the next round shows up and we're about to, the conversation is about to devolve into bikes and beer. So. <laughs> yeah. so people can find me primarily on Twitter. My handle is Andy man, alpha November Delta Indigo, Mike Alpha November November and at Andy Man on Twitter. If you want to hit me up, you can always probably uh, hit me there. Uh, if you want to see what Sageable is doing, my old website is still up, but it's still sort of accurate. Um, Sageable.com, S-A-G-E-A-B-L-E.com. Uh, and that's now my business. You can always email me at Andy at Sageable.com. And I will try and find your email in the raft of spam I get on that public address. Such is life as, as we know it. Right, Andy, right. thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Rob.
Well, we could have really gone another two hours in this conversation, and we'd already talked almost an hour um, just catching up before we even turned on the mics and started recording. If you get a chance to talk to Andy one-on-one at a conference or something, please do. Um, Definitely, I learn a lot, and I really enjoy his perspective on the industry. Uh, If this is interesting to you, give me a call. I would love to talk to you one-on-one and have a similar conversation and, and hear what you're thinking on the industry and how things are going. Uh, the 2030.cloud is the place to connect with all things related to this podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put Uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and, you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.